0: Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to the Return Property and Investment Podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn. Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to the Return Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and this week, I'm going to address some big news on a topic we've covered at length, minimum energy efficiency standards. So the big news has been the scrapping of proposed minimum energy efficiency standards of EPCC plus for properties to be legally rented out. Robacks never look graceful, but in fact, this one makes quite a lot of sense. And I really enjoyed talking to Rod Turner on his property business investment broadcast about the scrapping of band me's. So in this episode, I'm just going to share that recording. The topics include why scrapping planned is likely to be positive for the private rental sector and its renters and the environment, why our clients, institutional investors, were and are self-regulating and targeting better than the ex-proposed minimum EPC FC, and what other policies might work better than the ex-proposed means, such as council tax to incentivize upgrades. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our news updates on The Rodcast. My guest today has had a career focused on optimizing residential investments throughout regulatory And market changes. So for the news that's come out over the last couple of weeks, she should be perfectly placed to have a great discussion. She's the co-founder of Green Resi, which is a company that helps residential investors and asset managers to future proof and grow their rental portfolios at scale. She's also the chair of Cambridge University Land Society's Residential Forum. She's released two best-selling books on residential property, and she regularly comments on housing in the mainstream news, including the Financial Times and BBC. She also hosts a fantastic podcast as well called The Return. And my guest, if in case you haven't already guessed, is Anna Claire Harper. So welcome, Anna. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be on the other side, Faunce. <laughs> I bet it is. So look, let's get on with some of the major news stories. And the big one was the Prime Minister rolling back on these uh, B's and the EPC requirements. Yeah. Do you want to run through kind of what we all thought as landlords and investors they were going to be and what now has changed?
0: Yeah, of course. So since 2018 and 2020, respectively, landlords have no longer been able to continue to let out domestic private rental sector properties that are covered by MEIS regulations. So MEIS regulations in general are already in place. But in that case, that was applying to EPCs rated below E, and there's various exemptions in place, including a cost cap. The plan, the proposed legislation was to increase that minimum energy efficiency standard to EPCC, And in the proposed legislation, this was starting in 2025 and then to 2028 in the same way, sort of phased in from in relation to existing tenancies. There was another piece in the proposed legislation, which is also really important, which was that all mortgage lenders needed to have an EPC of C as an average across their portfolios from 2030. And the big surprise is that this proposed legislation has been scrapped. So, so it's quite a big change, considering that this would have had a very significant impact on the private rental sector, about two thirds of homes fall below the proposed minimum EPC. And so it's but it's also probably the source of quite a big, quite a large amount of breadth of relief from many investors, property managers and so on.
1: And so why do you think it was scrapped? What's the reasoning behind the foreign minister's decision on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's many different ways of looking at it, but ultimately, the closer we were getting to the planned timeframe, i.e., 2025, 2028, whatever it would become, the harder it becomes to deliver. And by rowing back on the commitment that we had in that or the proposed commitment, that gives everyone in the private rental sector a bit more time and flexibility on the method that they pick to do the things that to be honest, everybody knows, need to happen. And I do think it's probably worth talking about those two things because just sort of taking a step back on the planned minimum energy efficiency standards, they were totally in keeping with two broader policy trends. One is a cross-party desire for a more professional private rental sector, and that has been the case for many years now, the idea being to make the private rental sector and the provision of homes more professional. Because as we know, the rental sector is becoming more and more important. Rent is such a huge portion of spending for renters. And yet, as we know, the bulk of the private rental sector is non-professional. Typically, people owning properties in their personal names on the side of a job, perhaps, or because they've ended up with effectively an accidental portfolio. And that's not seen as kind of the future and where we need to be in terms of professionalism of provision. So policies like Section 24 tax changes, the Renters Reform Bill, the additional stamp duty land tax rate, all of that was aimed in this one direction, which was a more professional private rental sector. And minimum increasing minimum energy efficiency standards very much aligns with that. And the other big kind of broader policy trend is the aiming for net zero. And that's a legally binding climate change target. And it's almost impossible to achieve without essentially attempting to eliminate greenhouse gases from UK buildings. So if you look at kind of the way the way we emit greenhouse gas emissions at the moment, according to the Climate Change Committee, about 14% of UK emissions are from homes. So there is no way of ignoring homes in moving to net zero. And it's just not enough to have higher standards for new homes. New homes are... Basically tiny by comparison with the so size when we're only the, building
1: 110,000 a year
0: <laughs> absolutely minuscule and and 98 of the homes that we use in five years time let's say are already already exist so those are the ones that we need to retrofit so the point of mentioning those kind of two broader policy trends is that actually the idea of minimum energy efficiency standards and of them increasing really did fit in quite well with two other broader pro- policy trends The problem was that it was essentially almost impossible to deliver (laughs) Mm. with the time that we have left and other enablers that were missing. So things like national grid capacity, skills shortage and funding for private landlords. So those bits would be critical to actually achieving minimum energy efficiency standards.
1: One of the points that I find difficult to get my head around is how this is all measured. So how this is quantified. And this is obviously done through EPCs. And the way in which they're measured does not seem fit for purpose in today's, well, buildings, really. Some examples are things like electric heating is is not really calculated very well. There's all sorts of weird and wacky issues with windows for existing properties and and new builds as well. Is there any kind of thoughts on the EPC's changing and how they're all going to be calculated to incorporate some of these things that we're typically using in buildings today? And do you think any of that's got any reasoning behind the Prime Minister's decision to roll back on this?
0: Very possibly, very possibly. I mean, it's not the only change that he's made in a very short space of time along a similar theme. So we wouldn't want to be the one speculating about the reasons why, but the or the specific reasons why. But I think it is, you're, you are right, it's worth kind of dwelling for a few minutes on, I guess, using EPCs as a policy mechanism. They are not perfect at all. That said, EPCs are indicative of energy efficiency, and they are indicative of the quality of a home. So they are a useful indicator, but they are not accurate. And that has been one of the biggest kind of criticisms waged at the minimum energy efficiency standards. And the other is that essentially, as you say, they're not fit for purpose because EPCs and the software that, that produces the results that are in that you would know as your, you know, your letter, the letter that you get at the end of, of the EPC is calculated by this software called RDSAP. I always forget what the D stands for. Whatever it's called.
1: RDSAT, what is it called? This is the SAP calculation,
0: isn't it? Yeah, yeah. RDSAP. Anyway, whatever it's called. Yeah. RDSAP. (laughs) Just remember the acronym. Um, That software plus the manual data input, which is your EPC assessor going around to a property, collecting data about the property. Um, Those two things are put together and come out with a set of results. And that set of results is a rating for the property, a potential rating, a set of recommendations. Um, the problem with that is that that whole system is based on the cost to heat a home. So, the idea being that to reduce energy bills essentially, that is different and a different set of parameters to what you would use if you were just aiming for net zero. So, if you're aiming for net zero, you would be looking, for example, at insulating the building to the extent that you can, insulating the envelope, and then putting in a heat pump. That set of changes could make energy bills more expensive. So the, the problem is where those two um, objectives diverge in terms of what the actual practical steps that you would take in the building are. So that answer the question?
1: It absolutely does. And, and even there's almost a third reducing carbon as well, which is also different to the amount of energy that can, say, escape a home, things like that. And that D stood for data, by the way, as well.
0: That's it.
1: Thank you. <laughs> it I, had, I had to look it up because I couldn't work it out either. So one of the other things was around gas boilers. So not just the EPC, so not just the fact that landlords no longer will need to have it rated as a C or above by 2025, but also that there were there was a ban on gas boilers, which has also been scrapped now. What are your thoughts on that? And is gas here to stay? Are we going to all be running kind of electric heating systems in the future? Will there be hydrogen boilers coming on mass market? What are your thoughts on these things?
0: Well, I think ultimately all of the all of these policy changes
1: or um, scrappings, I suppose,
0: the rowbacks are all part of the same. You could see them all as part of the same very logical step, actually, which is putting in place laws that are impossible to deliver because we don't have the infrastructure is a terrible, terrible idea. And this is all just part of the same thing. So um, for example, in this case, you know, we don't have the national grid capacity and capability to facilitate the shift to electric. Um, and same, same situation with, um, with electric cars. So it's very sensible to scrap at this stage, given that. The one thing I guess I would say is that we have kind of historically, and I guess for the last couple of years, as a country underinvested in infrastructure, and you could consider all of that energy infrastructure and also housing infrastructure to be pretty critical to good quality of life, um, as well as to a lower energy-consuming and lower greenhouse gas-consuming lifestyle. Um, so we do actually need to do that investment; otherwise, none of this is going to happen. And I think it's, I think it's being a bit more strategic and being a bit more long-term. And one of the problems that we have with these policy changes is that they're quite short-term decisions; they're not
1: four years for some reason.
0: What's that? Sorry. They always seem
1: to roll around every four years.
0: You say, well, yeah, but also, I mean, yes, they always are. But also the problem is that net zero 2050 is not a short term decision. Like that's a long range objective, which means we need long term strategies. And his housing policy in particular has been absolutely atrocious for like very kind of vote winning um, crowd pleaser policies. And it's not. Sustain like the outcomes are not sustainable either environmentally or socially we're facing we're sort of seeing this things falling apart now i think we're starting to see it
1: absolutely and i want to pick up on one of the things you said about kind of you touched on the fact that our housing stock we haven't really been investing in that we haven't been investing in the infrastructure in europe we have the leakiest housing In the whole of Europe at the moment, that really comes down to the fact that our housing, because of the quite an industrial country, a hundred odd years ago, we built lots of homes then. And throughout the last sort of hundred years, we haven't actually been replacing homes at the same rate at which we knock them down. And we've been keeping sort of buildings up after the war we built. We actually built over 400,000 homes some years, but we were also knocking quite a lot down as well. And so our net housing wasn't as good. But when we were building those homes, we weren't building them for 100 years. We were building them for 20, 30 years. But those homes are all still here today. And we haven't really gone back and retrofitted them and we haven't been building for the long term. And that is a massive problem because now we are sitting in a lot of Victorian homes and things like that where they're not really fit for today's kind of energy requirements got rid of them no, you're, you're
0: completely right. and to put some stats on that and sorry to interrupt you but yeah. to, just to put some stats on that the extent of unsuitability it is partly about the carbon emissions that we just talked about 14 percent of greenhouse gas emissions for example and a huge proportion of carbon um coming from coming from homes but also renter bills in the last year or so fuel poverty went up to over 55%. And that's despite the vast amounts of money that have been put into energy price guarantee. So it's a really significant problem that you mentioned. And I think just looking at the European example, that's a really, really good, helpful comparison. Their housing stock is much more fit for purpose. One of the things that in some countries across Europe, has worked really well, is more institutional ownership. So for example, in Germany, housing stock is typically much better quality and the ownership is also much more concentrated. So that kind of comes back to that point we made earlier about the private rental sector being more professional. And it also ties in sort of very neatly with the work that we do at Green Mersey, which is essentially helping institutional and professional investors and managers to understand the granular nature of the, I'll call it non-professional private rental sector, and understand how they can invest in that and invest for the future. Because they genuinely do want to invest in sustainable opportunities. They are not particularly keen on things like commercial real estate right now, which is very volatile, values have gone down 20, 30%. They like the idea of residential for rent, but typically don't have the experience of of the complexities of existing private rental sector homes, whereas New build, you know, shiny new, like you can sell that to an institution as a concept because it looks great and it feels great. But this existing stock that we have so much of and that has so many social and environmental problems associated is just a bit harder. So, so we kind of act as that bridge between the more professional investors and the opportunities within the private rental sector. So I thought it's worth mentioning that because they, as a kind of category of investors, are self-regulating. They are not worried that minimum energy efficiency standards. They were ignoring that rule anyway, right? They were going above above and beyond, I don't know, any institution that wasn't planning on going further than the baseline of EPCC.
1: And just on that point, surely this is about future-proofing and any investor is going to be looking at what their asset is and the lifespan of their ownership of that asset, which I think is the key part and maybe key differential here between these institutional investors and maybe, I don't know, what I call your mom and pop investors who are doing this because actually the institutions are looking long term and they're willing to put in that capital expense to get money back maybe not in the next year or two but really down the line and to have those total return numbers over the next 40 years say be higher and i think a lot of mom and pop investors aren't quite at that level or just do not have the the capital expense to be be able to put into these and they are capital intensive assets i mean Housing is very capital intensive, unfortunately. <laughs> and so maybe that is a bit of a difference there.
0: I completely agree with that. And I think for professional investors, it's kind of a cost of business. Yeah. Um, you know, Maintenance and maintenance budgets and uh, having a reserve fund, for example, is seen as uh, that's part of how you do business. And in the same way, that uh, I don't know why this example just came to mind. But, for example, there's been loads of stuff in the press recently about middle class shoplifting going up. So as an example, supermarkets look at the amount of theft that they suffer and they look at that as a cost of business, right? They're not shutting the shops just because people are stealing more baguettes or whatever. It's the same thing. Professional investors look at the cost of running a portfolio of, of property and they look at also the cost that they have to incur to manage that. And it's harder for an individual and also often because of the nature of not like i call them non-professional mom and pop whatever but yeah. if you have ended up with a property because you moved in with a partner and, and you never intended to be a landlord you may never have may never have like, crossed your mind and quite understandably that you would have to be saving some money because over the 10-year period it's very likely that x y and z would have gone wrong with the property unless you specifically set out with the mission of being a landlord it's unlikely that you would have sort of had that information given to you I think, it's I think... all of it is completely understandable is what i'm trying to say absolutely <laughs> and
1: going on kind of previous times, it's easy to forget that buildings are depreciating by their very nature. And everyone kind of thinks, all oh, house prices go up. Well, yes, but the buildings depreciate and the buildings require constant maintenance and uplifting and and uh repurposing sometimes when they get when they fall down. And there's been a lot around kind of rebuild values, for example, and things like that. And one of the other big problems that comes to mind when on this whole rollback and scrapping of, of kind of EPCs and being able to retrofit certain buildings to, to a standard is where's the labour coming from to do this? Everything's got to happen in the next two years. I mean, it's hard enough to find someone to come you know, fix your plumbing, let alone, like, if we've got 40% or whatever the stat was about of these buildings that are not up to uh, standard yet, that all need to be fixed in the next two years. Just never going to happen, is it? Oh, my goodness. There's so much that you've said in that
0: in that one set of statements. So, firstly, on, on the skills shortage, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's about a shortage of about 500,000.
1: Well, Retreat. 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 yeah i mean just on the labor alone we're losing yeah. five hundred thousand skilled labor in over the next five years just on age and it's just yeah. it to retirement age and no one's and that's a net loss so that's showing that people coming into the industry to take up those places
0: but that's a big big problem and solving the and i think that kind of comes back to what we we're saying earlier about enablers right Is like If you don't have this that old expression, you can't get the staff, but like you do actually need people to deliver this stuff. Otherwise prices keep going up and up. And just going back to the point you made on, on kind of essentially land value versus property value. Exactly. The actual fabric of the bricks and mortar fabric depreciates over time, especially if it was not built for the long term, um, like some of the more modern modern buildings and the land appreciates. And that's all very well. But there's actually another kind of, I guess, a worsener to that, to that, which is that the co- as the cost of materials and labor is going up more than inflation. And has done for most of the last couple of years as a minimum. So it's getting more expensive to fix, which is a really big problem. So I think there was something else, but I've forgotten what
1: it was. But I just also jotted down a note when you mentioned kind of energy bills as well. Even with all the price cap guarantees we've had, the amount gone up. And there's a stat yeah. I've got here, which is the bottom 10% of households to or before COVID were spending 7% of their household income on energy. That is now 20% of their household income is spent on energy, which is an insane increase in just a couple of years. So, and like you say, that's with all these kind of caps on prices as well. We've seen kind of everything in the news at the moment is about oil prices and things go rocketing up because there's such a shortage and things like that. So (laughs) I do think there's a lot to be said for this kind of gap And how we're going to get to this net zero, sure we'll, well, we might as well start talking now about kind of uh, if we've got solar, wind, nuclear, are we going to be able to, what's a realistic transition time to get into that and away from the fossil fuels that we've been using? Because it's not like you can flick a switch and go, like you said, national grid's not ready Mm. for it. What do you think is a reasonable and realistic amount of time to be able to actually transition to I don't know, 90% of all UK homes to, to be in an EPC, C or above? So
0: that question is probably slightly beyond my pay grade. But what I would say, I do think there's some really interesting and important points to make around the time frame, but also around, I guess, joining up policies together. Because as you say, energy policy and housing policy are so intertwined in terms of both what is required and also what the outcomes will be. Ditto transport policy and housing policy, like everything has to be linked together, immigration policy and housing policy. And what we have seen in recent years is is absolutely not joined up thinking. So, for example, immigration policies are totally are totally misaligned with housing policies. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the extent to which we're actually building new homes, not very much compared to like last year, 500,000 net net migrants into the UK. That this podcast is obviously not about that, but I guess it's symptomatic of a lack of joined up thinking and also a lack of long term thinking. So to me, anyway, in terms of the timing, the only way we can really expect to move towards achieving net zero, which is the ultimate kind of the ultimate legally binding policy objective that affects all of these sectors is to have policies that move towards that goal, and they can't be random vote-winning, Okay, well, we're going to do this by 2030, because we've said that we're going to do it by 2030. It all has to be lined up to, Okay, well, we have to have this by 2040 in order to achieve this by 2050. Fine, but let's think
1: about it. (laughs) Maybe having a bit of the how before we decide the, the what. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Mm. Ex- exactly. And and I think one more, one more kind of point on that is around policy certainty. So there's a bunch of stuff that private sector businesses really, really want to do subject to certainty from a policy perspective. And if we contrast what's happening in the private rental sector with minimum energy efficiency standards with what's happening in social housing, it's a totally different picture. And one of the reasons for that is due to sort of the proportion of larger, kind of more institutional type bodies that have the ability to lobby and to argue for certainty. So in social housing, the equivalent of minimum energy efficiency standard has been in place for years and has a timeframe of 2030 as the objective. That is a totally different picture to this kind of chopping and changing that we've seen in the private rental sector. And as a result, there's a bunch of really incredible businesses that have set themselves up in that sector to help to deliver those outcomes. The other big difference between the two sectors is <laughs> the extent of public funding that has been allocated. And I would have thought that one of the one of the sort of factors behind Rishi's latest decision on minimum energy efficiency standards was the realisation that having the proposed legislation come into law without an equivalent kind of public funding mechanism would be career suicide <laughs> and, and government and kind of party suicide, really, because... Yeah the people who own the properties just simply cannot afford to put these changes in place.
1: On that, on the political suicide, if Labour get into power, is this scrap going to be scrapped again and it's all going to come back into force, do you think?
0: I mean, I actually honestly wouldn't know... um... I wouldn't know what they would do, to be honest, I'm not sure that they... do They know either. ...but possibly shouldn't publish that. Um, so I wouldn't want to predict what Labour would do. I think the general stance has to be that we need to do something about our housing stock, both from a quality and an energy efficiency perspective. And there are a lot of private companies and renters of properties who are all in agreement around that. Um, the I think the challenge is making that policy fit for purpose. And, for example... Where we've based things on EPCs, there's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the worst idea in the world, but it does need to be more flexible to because because everyone already has EPCs, because there's already a load of law around having them. So that they've got a wide reach, even though they're not perfect. And also because so a sort of slight backtrack on the whole EPC topic. Um, when I when I first started Green Resi, the first thing I did was my domestic energy assessor training so that I could understand, you know, what are all the problems <laughs> with this system? Uh, because we thought we'd end up doing a lot of stuff in relation to EPCs. And there are a bunch of problems. One of them is the manual input. The other is the software. The software can be changed quite easily and it is being changed quite easily. So that's the kind of thing that can be improved over time with relative ease. So it's not the worst mechanism to use for the basis of policy. The problem is that there's so many other factors like funding um, and like, you know, what does net zero actually look like for housing?
1: Hello, everyone. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge, with a maximum loan-to-value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will end up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance, up to a maximum loan of $5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed-use developments, and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDP or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do, provided... The information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate. The terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, They are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Yeah, I mean, God, we, i mean, on on that EPC front, to have to kind of start a, say, right, we're going to scrap gas boilers, but then, uh, and and you've got to have your EPC at a C, but then we're not going to actually measure electric boilers on yeah, there. Yeah. just bonkers, isn't it? It's it completely bonkers. Completely bonkers. I um, agree. I mean, yeah, there's so much there. I think as a as an investor, some landlords might be thinking, "Hey, this is fantastic news. I'm not going to bother." retrofitting and I'm not going to have to worry about it I mean my kind of thought process is I'm still going to be looking at how I can make my properties as energy efficient as possible because again like we had that long-term outlook and the institutionals versus the non-professional landlords it's I want to put that capital expense in now because it's going to get me better returns yeah it might not be the case that can charge higher rents but I'm sure my property is going to I'll have people staying in my properties for longer because one, their bills are lower, uh, yeah. so that's going to be more beneficial. It does attract people. We've got a, we've built a development recently where we had all, all the units were A-rated, and we got better financing from it. We got uptake of tenants was really, really fast. Now being just over a year, all tenants are staying on. Rents have, have gone up. It's it's great. It works well, and so future proofing for us is important. The difficulty is, if you've got, I don't know, a property in Timbuktu that's worth 50 grand, to then try and retrofit it is still going to cost a similar amount as if it's in Mayfair. And so, but as a proportion of the capital value, it's astronomical, and that is the difficulty. And I know Rishi Sunak was kind of, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but was hinting that, look, we won't force you to do this, but we'll still there'll still be grants available for certain properties and certain uplifts as well which made me think hey look using the carrot is is always going to be better than using the stick in these circumstances yeah. I, I find it quite odd that they haven't haven't tried to do that more of that recently What well... are your thoughts?
0: Is, is it odd because given what we said earlier about I like I, I do understand what you're saying, but I I don't think it's that odd given that giving giving out grant funding to private rental sector at this point would be at odds with the idea of um, of trying to make the sector more professional. I, I think it's more likely that there are grants available to professional landlords in the right structures, in the right setups. And the the point there is is not just about sort of being biased in favour of big business. It's about being able to regulate the owners of something that is so critical to the social fabric of the country so there is a good reason for having sort of encouraging that professionalization as it were um, and it is kind of a social and an environmental reason so i, I would have thought that there will be some funding um, down the line it just i just suspect it won't be a grant for every uh every landlord who applies for it on an individual level
1: so anna if you were made um i don't know this year's 21st housing minister or whatever number we're on at the oh, moment. Yeah. Um, what what would you put in place? What what would you make any changes to, to what's going on?
0: Well I think I sent you um, a housing policy paper that <laughs> I wrote earlier this year and I just happened to have quite a lot of ideas. So we did um we did a housing policy paper with the Whitehall group which is part of the Cambridge University land society that you mentioned in the introduction and we had so much. I mean, we had such a great time creating all these alternative policies because the whole point of that policy, that policy paper, was whilst a lot of rational politicians can't really freely, we had the opportunity to criticize <laughs> criticize without worrying, um, and then to and then to suggest you know radical policies and and a couple of policies. So we we covered every single uh, tenure, which again often actually yeah. see in policy we see certainly in the, in terms of headlines we see policies around first-time buyers and that is one part <laughs> one tenure and it's not representative and often the money doesn't really go to the people who need it the most anyway for example with the help to buy scheme which everyone dubbed help to sell and really ultimately most of the people who've benefited could have afforded to buy without it anyway so as cool. an example we try to avoid stuff like that um And I think one of my favourite policies that we suggested in that was was around adjusting council tax, which is obviously already already affects everybody to take into account things like the environmental impact of the properties and use that as a lever, a serious lever to um, to 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 shift and incentivize retrofit rather than um, a blanket, a blanket sort of requirement. Why not? incentivize this make it make it part of make it capitalist really what a
1: a great idea i I think that's brilliant and like i said it's it's incentivizing people and investors and landlords is is the obvious way if Mm. look if 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 this increases your returns by putting in this investment then why wouldn't you do it of course we're going to do it we're all investors so it's playing to kind of what people what people are into so i think that's brilliant and um yeah, if you don't mind, we can put a put a link to yeah. to, that, um, to that paper one, definitely. Yeah,
0: on, on the show notes. Definitely, I will. I'll ping you a link up this.
1: Brilliant. So, Anna, thanks so much for coming on today. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Um if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's where's the best place to go?
0: So LinkedIn, Anna Claire Harper. Uh we've also got a business website which is greenresi.com. Um it's spelled exactly as you would imagine it. And I have a personal website um which is Anna Claire Harper, no I am Claire.com. Uh and I'd love to hear from anyone who listens. And um also, yeah, maybe we can pop a pop a link to my podcast in the show notes as well, just in case anyone wants to check that out. Probably so, this episode will be there too.
1: <laughs> so we will get links to all of those in the show notes. Awesome. So- Thanks very much and hope we can do this again.
0: And me too. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you.
1: listening to The Return.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.